Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Brown, and with me I have... David Crowther of The History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the King of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, <laughs> even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But... There's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do Scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. Just before we start the show, I need to remind you that 10 American Presidents is part of the Agora Podcast Network. It's a network of great independently produced podcasts. This month, our featured podcast is The History of England by my good friend David Crowther. So, if you um, would like to know more about how the Anglish became the English why don't you subscribe to the History of England podcast today? Secondly, I'd just like to remind you that you can show your support in a financial manner by going onto patreon.com and becoming one of the patrons of 10 American Presidents. 
any little bit of extra money that you have would be gratefully received. So that's patreon.com. Become a patron of 10 American Presidents today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. This is a CBS News special report. I'm Katie Couric at CBS News Election Headquarters in New York. And we have breaking news, momentous news, really. CBS now estimates because of victories in California, Washington, Oregon, and Hawaii. CBS projects that Senator Barack Obama of Illinois will be the next president of the United States. He defeats John McCain, the senator from Arizona and Vietnam war hero. And no matter whom you voted for, you'd have to agree this is an incredible milestone in the history of this country. A century and a half after the Constitution abolished slavery and guaranteed blacks the right to vote, four decades after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, voters have chosen our first African-American president. Bob Schieffer and Jeff Greenfield, as we watch these dramatic pictures, and with all due respect, I think we probably want to stay on those pictures instead of shots of any of us. I mean, it is so incredible to see these crowds, the culmination of a two-year campaign and a lot of hopes and dreams of so many Americans. Katie, this is more than an election night in America. This is a momentous night in the history of our country. The pundits... The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. Red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and their patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. But so many people are surprised to hear that anger in some of Reverend Wright's sermons simply reminds us of the old truism that the most segregated hour of American life occurs on Sunday morning. She was born just a generation past slavery. A time when there were no cars on the road or planes in the sky. When someone like her couldn't vote for two reasons, because she was a woman and because of the color of her skin. And tonight, I think about all that she's seen throughout her century in America. The heartache and the hope, the struggle and the progress. The times we were told that we can't. And the people who pressed on with that American creed Yes, we can. At a time when women's voices were silenced and their hopes dismissed, she lived to see them stand up and speak out and reach for the ballot. Yes, we can. 
when there was despair in the Dust Bowl and depression across the land. She saw a nation conquer fear itself with a new deal, new jobs, a new sense of common purpose. Yes, we can. When the bombs fell on our harbor and tyranny threatened the world, she was there to witness a generation rise to greatness and a democracy was saved. Yes, we can. She was there for the buses in Montgomery, the hoses in Birmingham, a bridge in Selma, and a preacher from Atlanta who told the people that we shall overcome. Yes, we can. A man touched down on the moon. A wall came down in Berlin. A world was connected by our own science and imagination. And this year, in this election, she touched her finger to a screen and cast her vote. Because after 106 years in America, through the best of times and the darkest of hours, she knows how America can change. Yes, we can. Sarida, President Obama, is an academic and is probably the most well-read of all modern presidents. And he's famously an excellent writer. Did working for a president that understands grammar and syntax and the power of prose create problems for the presidential speechwriting team? No, um, I think the opposite is true. Um, well, first of all, and I wouldn't want to denigrate any of the other modern presidents who are quite well-read, Bill Clinton included. Um, and, but, but no, actually writing for somebody who is obviously well-read, who thinks deeply about American history and culture and his role in it and America's place today in the sort of long arc was actually really incredible. And as embarrassing as it was when he caught a typo in one's remarks, as he did a couple of times in mine, um, no, I think that having somebody who is such an extraordinary writer and a, and a really top-notch editor made our stuff better. It was like, I would say sometimes to friends that it was like taking a master writing class um, as my job. We can acknowledge that oppression will always be with us and still strive for justice. We can admit the intractability of deprivation and still strive for dignity. Clear-eyed, we can understand that there will be war and still strive for peace. We can do that, for that is the story of human progress. That's the hope of all the world. You talked about our. Tell us about that team. How, how is it structured? And, and when did you become part of the team? So I joined the team in 2014. So in uh, President Obama's second term, our chief speechwriter, the director of speechwriting, um, was Cody Keenan, who had been with the president since the campaign. Um, he, had, he had joined that team, um, I think, as a speechwriting intern in 2007 and then stayed on and rose to become chief. His deputy it was a guy named Terry Zuplat, who was also the head of 
uh, national security speech writing. So he was kind of in charge of all foreign policy speech writing, but also served as Cody's deputy and and kind of our, we called him deputy boss. And then when I joined, uh, gosh, I have to go back, we had, it was me and then two other speechwriters who were sort of in charge of mostly domestic foreign policy, uh, domestic policy speech writing. And Ben Rhodes, who was deputy national security advisor, also worked with Terry on foreign policy. And we would help sometimes with foreign policy speeches, but that was mostly up to Terry and Ben. And then while I was there, you know, we had a couple of, of staff changes, people left, people joined. But basically, there were there were sort of three of us at any given time who kind of focused on primarily domestic speech writing in addition to Cody and Terry. And then we also had um, who we called a, an assistant speech writer. Um, and her job was to write, to research, to also serve as Cody's assistant. She was kind of our utility player. And that was the team. At a time when our discourse has become so sharply polarized, at a time when we are far too eager to lay the blame for all that ails the world at the feet of those who happen to think differently than we do, it's important for us to pause for a moment and make sure that we're talking with each other in a way that that heals, not in a way that wounds. So obviously people come and go over the duration of our administration, especially one which is over two terms. Being a speechwriter, could you see that in terms of the types of speeches which uh, were delivered at that time? You know, I don't know how much of that was a function of the changes in staff so much as just being a second term president and and in the second half of his second term when I came on, um, that I think the nature of speeches changes. You know, when you first join, when when a president first comes into office, what um, he, hopefully one day she, but for up until now he, um, historically is doing is kind of setting the tone, shifting from the, the sort of the poetry of the campaign, as people say, into the prose of governing. And so there's a lot of kind of agenda setting and, you know, staking out what the project of the presidency will be. And, you know, that can kind of lead to criticism that a, that a speech, that speeches become kind of, frankly, prosaic. Um, and then you're leading up to your re-election, which, of course, has its own political considerations and changes in speeches and, and a different, potentially a different message. And then, you know, once, in this case, our president won re-election, uh, then there's a, there's a bit of a different agenda, right? There's, a, of course, your policy agenda. And at this point, you know, we were working with, we were in the minority in our Congress, and there was there were a whole range of policy issues the president was trying to get done, much of it on the foreign policy stage. And then there's also kind of wrapping up. Um, in a sense, and I don't think we ever thought this explicitly, but there was a sort of, maybe inadvertently and, and maybe unintentionally, but maybe somewhere in the back of the mi- our minds, we knew that what we were also trying to do was kind of uh, round out uh, the president's message and what had been, looking back, what had been the project of, of his presidency and what we hoped we were leaving the country with. Um, and again, I don't think that was explicitly thought of, but I think, you know, that kind of inevitably happens um, in a second term. And then, of course, you know, people did change. And so, you know, I was somebody who who came in late. And frankly, I voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2008 primary. Um, and of course, I, I love President Obama. And I, you know, the next day when he won the primary, I was on Team Obama. But I wasn't part of that sort of early, very young, and on the speechwriting side, very male team. Um, and I came in later, had a different set of experiences and, and uh, a different take, of course, on, on politics and policy. And I had actually been a, a policy person before I became a speechwriter. So, so naturally, I brought a, a different sensibility, as did our whole team. But I think that if 
you look over the arc of President Obama's speeches, or really any two-term president, and you see a shift, I wonder how much of that is probably more um, a function of what happens to a president as, as he serves over the two terms and the, and the changes that he undergoes more than maybe the, the change in the personnel. This evening, Michelle and I will do what I know every parent in America will do, which is hug our children a little tighter. And we'll tell them that we love them. And we'll remind each other how deeply we love one another. But there are families in Connecticut who cannot do that tonight. And they need all of us right now. In the hard days to come, that community needs us to be at our best as Americans. And I will do everything in my power as president to help. And from every family who, who never imagined that their loved one would be taken from our lives by a bullet from a gun. You talked about your take. Could you tell us a little bit about your career path before you became a presidential speechwriter? So tell, tell us about that, that time before you walked into the White House for the first time and maybe got that badge. What were you doing and, and, and what led you ultimately to, to that role? I think like many speechwriters, I had a sort of long and meandering and somewhat random path to, to the White House. Um, so after I grew up in New Jersey, my parents were immigrants. And um, after college, I, went, I did a program called Teach for America, which is a program that places college graduates into underserved communities to teach in the public schools for two years. So I did that in New Orleans for a couple of years and was sort of so moved and, and enraged by what I saw in terms of the lack of an educational opportunity that we were um, that America was leaving our most vulnerable kids with, um, I decided to sort of get into education policy. So I moved to Washington and I worked for a nonprofit that worked with state legislators on progressive issues. Um, and then I went to public policy school. I went to the Kennedy School at Harvard and got my master's in public policy. And then I went to Capitol Hill working for former Senator Mary Landrieu from Louisiana, where I had taught. And I was her health and education policy advisor, basically. So not at all a speechwriter. And actually, while I was there, one of the things I worked on was the Affordable Care Act, which is more commonly known as Obamacare. But I worked at it from the policy perspective. And while I was there, I think I'd kind of always known that I wanted to be a writer. I think I I wanted to be a writer since I was a, a little kid. I always enjoyed it. It was always my favorite thing to do. But I never really could imagine what a job in writing would look like. I knew I didn't want to be a journalist. I, fashion, I sort of fancied myself too opinionated for that. And I just, I didn't quite know how to pursue my interest in policy and politics and writing sort of all in one. And um, I was, when I was on the Hill, I was, I enjoyed the people I worked with and I loved the issues I worked on. And I loved the senator, but I didn't love the day-to-day -day of my work. So one day I was at a party complaining about my job, which is what one does at a party. And uh, a friend of mine said, you know, I know a guy who's a speechwriter. You should talk to him. And it didn't even really occur to me that speechwriting was a job. You know, I had, I had watched the West Wing like all American politicos, but I, I didn't really think it was a job that somebody could just sort of get. And, and so she put me in touch with this person who um, it turned out was a partner at a firm called West Wing Writers, which is a, a speechwriting firm run by former Clinton speechwriters. Bill Clinton, presidential speechwriters. And um, I talked to him and got to know them over the course of a couple of years. And um, I had never written a speech before, but I, I took a writing test and sent them some writing samples and they hired me. And uh, I was really incredibly lucky that they did. 
taking a chance on a, a 30 year old who had never written a speech before. Um, and I was there for about four and a half years. And while I was there, one of the things that I did that our firm did actually was run the speech writing boiler room at the 2012 Democratic Convention. So in America, mm-hmm. we've got our, our political conventions where we nominate, officially nominate our um, presidential nominee. And in our case, what that means is that there's sort of three nights of primetime television where all the big players in our party, including in this case, the sitting president, Barack Obama, would speak. But before primetime, there were actually more than 100 speeches delivered by all manner of members of the party, from members of Congress to state officials, all kinds of folks. And somebody had to write those speeches. And it turns out that that's about 15 unkempt speechwriters who were locked up in the referee's locker room of the stadium we were in in North Carolina. <laughs> and um, so I was on that team. And while I was there, Cody, who was going to go, it was this was 2012, and he, he would go on to become the president's chief speechwriter. He saw my work. We had known each other at the Kennedy School. He was a year behind me, so he knew who I was, but I I don't even know if he knew I was a speechwriter. Anyway, he saw my work there, and I think that that's why maybe a couple of years later he called me. So one day in 2014, he he called me and said, hey, you want to come write speeches for the president? Wow. Yeah, (laughs) it was pretty remarkable. (laughs) Do you like football? Not particularly. Okay. You you mean American football or... (laughs) No, I was gonna. I was gonna say your your type of uh, the, the weird American form of football, which is not even a spherical object and, and which is not manipulated by the foot. But here's the question. Here's the question I was actually gonna try and ask: Was Cody in effect like the quarterback of the team? And if so, what would your position have been within the speech writing team? Did he basically direct, write the template of the speeches? Do then other people then fill in? Um, what were your specific talents in terms of what you brought to a speech, do you think? So um, I don't know enough about um, football, American or otherwise, to answer whether or not Cody is a quarterback. Um, but I think his... Um, so the way that the team was kind of structured was, yes, Cody would sort of guide us in terms of the overarching message and because and, and in part because he was also part of the senior staff. So the senior staff sitting down with the president were the ones who would sort of determine what the president's message would be on any number of issues and also kind of more broadly speaking over the course of his presidency. And he was in those meetings and we weren't. So he and he was part of shaping that. So for sure he was kind of directing the general direction of what we were doing. Um, and what he was also doing in addition to writing speeches and, and he helped the president write some of his most beloved, important, fantastic speeches, including, for example, Selma. The American instinct that led these young men and women to pick up the torch and cross this bridge, that's the same instinct that moved patriots to choose revolution over tyranny. It's the same instinct that drew immigrants from across oceans and the Rio Grande. The same instinct that led women to reach for the ballot, workers to organize against an unjust status quo. The same instinct that led us to plant a flag at Iwo Jima and on the surface of the moon. It's the idea held by generations of citizens who believe that America is a constant work in progress, who believe that loving this country requires requires more than singing its praises or avoiding uncomfortable truths. It requires the occasional disruption, the willingness to speak out for what is right, to shake up the status quo. That's America. Um, but in addition to all of that, he was assigning us the speeches and helping us sort of sort of directing that process. So, you know, every few days we would meet as a team and he would say, here's what we've got in the calendar because he had just come from a senior staff meeting and he knew the schedule. And he would say, here's what we've got coming up. Who wants what? 
or he would, you know, depending on our capacity and our interest, we would jump on speeches. So for example, a speech honoring the winning Super Bowl team, I would definitely not jump on because as we just discussed, I don't know anything about football, um, but, <laughs> but maybe a speech about, you know, a musical performance I would jump on because I am a musician or I like music or I had time. Um, and so that, that was kind of what would happen then. And then, you know, if depending on the nature of the speech, we might say, especially early on when I first got there, I would definitely work with him on an outline to make sure that he was good with the direction of it. Um, if it was a, a bigger speech and one that was maybe a, on a subject that was more controversial or of particular interest to the president, we might meet with the president and get his take uh, up front and then kind of work on the draft and then and then send it back to him. So, there, so it, it depended on the nature of the speech, the specific process. But in general, I would say that once we got the pen, we had a lot of freedom to think about what we thought the president would want to say. Um, and of course, with his input, with Cody's input, and with a ton of help from people around the building who were the policy experts and who who knew you know, what the message ought to be. And so I think it was, it was a really collaborative environment by, by definition. That's what makes us unique. That's what cements our reputation as a beacon of opportunity. Young people behind the Iron Curtain would see Selma and eventually tear down that wall. Young people in Soweto would hear Bobby Kennedy talk about ripples of hope and eventually banish the scourge of apartheid. Young people in Burma went to prison rather than submit to military rule. They saw what John Lewis had done. From the streets of Tunis to the Maidan in Ukraine, this generation of young people can draw strength from this place, where the powerless could change the world's greatest power and push their leaders to expand the boundaries of freedom. They saw that idea made real right here in Selma, Alabama. They saw that idea manifest itself here in America. Interesting. Let's go back slightly step before we talk about maybe the amount of face time that you um, had with the president whilst going through various drafts of the speech. And then we can start to focus on the speech in question that, that we're going to play for the listeners. Is it normal that you as somewhat of a policy wonk, because you said you came from definitely a policy background, is it normal for somebody with those kind of real policy chops to become a speechwriter, is understanding policy important when writing political speeches, or do you not necessarily need that? Well, I don't know if there's any normal. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, I think if you talk to, if you poll ten speechwriters, you'll get ten different stories about how they became speechwriters. This is one of those fields where there's no direct path, um, and especially those of us from you know sort of my generation and earlier, it was not even a sort of obvious career path the way it is now, now that more people know about it. You will find people who had policy backgrounds. I mean, you know, Sam Rosenman, who is uh, Franklin Roosevelt's, one of his top speechwriters, was a judge in New York, you know, a longtime legal expert, somebody who, you know, helped him out on the campaign from that perspective and and the speechwriting perspective. You know, Ted Sorensen, who is Kennedy's sort of speechwriting soulmate, was also kind of an advisor and a friend. And so I think those are people who did have some degree of, of policy background. And then, of course, Ben Rhodes, who's President Obama's sort of you know top foreign policy speechwriter, was also our na- deputy national security advisor and extremely knowledgeable about you know policy expert, a number of foreign policy issues. So I think that does happen. 
it might be un somewhat unusual for someone like me to kind of leave behind policy entirely and then jump into speech writing. And I think it certainly helped in for me to be able to, you know, write an education speech or write a, a speech about the Affordable Care Act, having helped write part of it. There was something to that and my ability to kind of you know, read a piece of legislation and know what's going on. That said, I think that my colleagues, my speechwriting colleagues, weren't necessarily at a disadvantage. Part of what makes a good speechwriter is somebody who's a quick study and very curious and enjoys interviewing people the way you're interviewing me because they want to learn more. And if you're willing to do that, um, you can you can learn about these policies. And part of, I think, what our job was, and I think maybe part of what makes me good at my job is that, yes, I understand the policy, but our ultimate goal is to explain that policy to people who don't know anything about it. And um, I think being able to translate it with, of course, empathy for the people who came up with the policy and want to talk about all the details, but helping them understand that what we're trying to do is make it something that is persuasive and understandable to your average American is a huge part of the job. And so from that perspective, I think, yes, it's helpful to have a policy background. And I do think that gave me some advantages. And I also think my, my colleagues were, you know, up to the task as well, in terms of translating that policy and trying to making it something that, that people could understand. A few more questions before we actually run into the specifics of the speech. Tell us about that first day when, uh, you know, you get you get your badge, your security clearance, and you can actually uh, walk up to the main doors of... Uh, of the White House. Oh, it's surreal. Um, you know, I got to the gate. I was I was told which gate to go to by, you know, Susanna, our assistant speechwriter, who would you know go on to become a good friend. But I don't know who she was, and so Cody had sent her out to come and collect me. And you know, you're terrified. You're walking through the northwest gate of the White House. You think that at any moment some large man with a gun is going to come up to you and politely escort you out of the building and tell you there's been a terrible mistake. I mean, the whole day was just surreal and, and it never really stopped being surreal. Um, and so in, initially, actually, you're given a temporary badge until you fill out all of your paperwork and get cleared. Um, that first day, there was just there was a lot of paperwork and, you know, getting your BlackBerry at the time. I don't know what they're using now, but whatever unsecured phone the Trump administration is using. But um, we all had Blackberries. So getting all of your, your paperwork and getting your office situated and all that stuff was, you know, that was most of my day. What was really amazing, though, is that I somehow started on a day that the president was actually leaving for a foreign trip. I believe he was going to Estonia and some other countries. And so halfway through the day, Cody says, why don't you come by to, you know, to his office in the West Wing, to Cody's office in the West Wing. So my office was in the old executive office building, which was renamed the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which is a large building right next to the White House, you know, just um, separated by a small driveway. And, um, and that's where most people who work in the White House actually work in this large building because the West Wing is quite small. So his office was in the West Wing with all the other senior staff. And he said, why don't you come over and, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a tour of the West Wing and maybe introduce you to some people. And, you know, he took time out of his extremely busy day to walk me around the West Wing, show me where things were. He introduced me to the chief of staff, Dennis McDonough. He introduced me to the communications director. He introduced me to, a, you know, a bunch of, of people. And then he takes me to the Oval Office and there's, there's, so the Oval Office is um, uh, sort of you, you go, you enter into it through what we call the Outer Oval, which is where the President's Director of Oval Office Operations and his personal secretary sat. So we go there, and already my, you know, I'm holding my breath. I'm, I kind of cannot believe that they are letting me this close to the Oval Office, <laughs> this place that I have loved and, and admired from afar for so long, and, you know, especially as a history junkie. And so we walk in there and um, into the Outer Oval, and he introduces me to the two people who are working there. And then he just walks me into the Oval Office. And 
you know, the president wasn't there and I was just stunned. I couldn't believe I was in there. I don't even, I think I, I kind of sort of blacked out for a second in my own mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he shows me around and then, and then he points me out the door uh, towards looking towards the South Lawn and the president is actually walking out towards Marine One um, and he's going to take the helicopter to Andrews Air Force Base where he's going to take his, his foreign flight, um, his flight abroad this foreign trip. And there's um, every time Marine One took off, there would actually be a group of people, sort of a group of tourists or staff who would watch and say bye. And so we saw those people. But I watched the president take off on Marine One from the Oval Office on my first day working as a White House speechwriter. And I honestly could not believe that that was my life. <laughs> you know, it was just one of those surreal days. But come on, didn't, didn't you actually feel a little bit shortchanged and thought, blooming hell, Mr. Obama, the least you could have done is being there to greet me yourself. <laughs> no, I would have died. No, no, it's really good that he wasn't. I would have just made an ass out of myself for sure. I needed a few days to accustom myself. No, it was really extraordinary. I felt very lucky. Right. He's going to give a speech, or at least the administration thought that he should give a speech at the in the end of kind of 2015. Could you describe the political environment that led to, to the speech? Take us back to that time. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. We have no choice. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. 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 I want surveillance of certain mosques. But that's okay. So first, let me just say that the, the speech that we're going to talk about was a speech that was just on the calendar. The president often, you know, I, I don't even know how often, maybe every every year even, would speak at a naturalization ceremony for new citizens. Um, and the one that he was scheduled to speak at was happening at the National Archives, which is um, a government building in the United States where we, um, uh, which houses many of the sort of founding documents and important, um, important records. Um, and so, Anyway, that was just on the schedule. Now, at the time, I mean, this was, I think this was December of 2015. At the time, things were getting ugly in America. It's, it's, a, it's kind of remarkable how long ago this was. But, but so, so Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the president in June of 2015, which, you know, gives us sort of six months up until the point when the president gave this speech. It was really ugly. In his announcement itself, he talked a lot about illegal immigration. He was denouncing you know, the other, essentially. And by the time we got to the speech itself, I believe he had already announced his 
total and official and complete ban on Muslims entering the United States, the Muslim ban, which has now gone into effect now that he's president. And he was doing a lot of fear-mongering, a lot of stirring up his base with really nativist, racist sentiments against immigrants, um, against Muslim Americans, against Mexican Americans, against African Americans, you know, I mean, and just every kind of person you could think of, he was, he was stirring up his base against. But there was something particularly ugly about his language against immigrants. And, um, and it was something that he had always done, but it was, it was shocking to see a presidential candidate talk this way. So at the time, the Muslim ban had been announced and things were getting scary. I mean, it felt like, you know, I would have to look at the numbers, but there was, it sort of felt like there was an uptick in hate crimes and, and people were just actually frightened that this guy was going to, you know, if he were to win, ban Muslims. Like this notion that that was an acceptable policy was terrifying to people. There was just a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. And so we figured, you know, as the speech was coming up, what if we just... What if we use this as an opportunity as President Obama is welcoming new citizens to their responsibilities as American citizens in this place that houses our founding documents? What if we use this as an opportunity to kind of assert the nation that President Obama believes we are, which is a nation of immigrants, and to tell the story of what immigration has always meant to America, that, that our founding animating reason for being is in fact immigration. And so, you know, we just kind of came up with that, you know, we, we ran with it. So the, he was going to give the, the speech, it's in the calendar, you know it's going to happen, it's a case of the speech writing team actually saying, right, we can use this as an opportunity to kick back against the front runner in the Republican presidential primaries to, to say that this nativist strand isn't fundamentally the American kind of like story and then you took it to the president am, am I getting that right well then? so um, um, in terms of yes that we that we came up with the idea yes but I want to be clear that I don't mm-hmm. think that what we were doing was let's stick it to Donald Trump what I think was that this is a moment for the president who is a moral leader of the country to state what America really is yes to push back against that sentiment not for sort of political reasons, but for moral reasons, and to sort of reassert who we know we are and who most Americans agree who we are. We came up with this, and then, yeah, we presented it to the president who wanted to do it. And in part, you know, it's not that he wouldn't have come up with it, it's that he's not looking at his schedule, you know, looking at every single speech on the on the calendar, mm-hmm. deciding what the opportunity is. He's got other things to do with his time. So that's that's part of what the speechwriter speechwriting team's job is, right? To, to sort of look at the calendar and look at opportunities for the president to present his message and to, to offer moral leadership at a time when it's needed. Okay, so you've come up with a speech, first draft of a speech. Specifically, what was your input? And how do the speech writing team write in the president's voice? So in this case, the person, you know, we, we would always work with you know, either Cody or Terry. So in this case, I was working with Terry on this one. Um, and so he and I kind of talked through what an outline could be. And then I wrote a first draft and he edited it. And then I think Cody edited it too. And then, you know, it would go around the building. And when I say around the building, the draft that we were happy with would be checked by the fact checkers, the lawyers, the policy people, um, the chief of staff, I mean, everybody to, to make sure that everything was correct and accurate. 
and flag anything that needed to be sourced or any facts that might be incorrect. I know this sounds really novel considering what's happening right now with president's speeches, um, but this is a, it was a really rigorous fact-checking process run by our excellent research department. And then it would go to the president and who would then edit it and send it back to us. In terms of writing in the president's voice, I mean, I think I've said this in, uh, often, and I think a lot of other speechwriters say it too, which is that when you're thinking about writing in someone's voice, what you're really trying to figure out is, is how they think. And spending time with somebody is, of course, a great way to do that and the ideal way to do that. But a president is busy and we didn't get a lot of face time with him. And so what I did before I even got to the White House, once I got the job, was just kind of read every single thing the president had said, <laughs> watch every interview make sure I caught every time he was on Jimmy Kimmel or whatever, really immerse myself in his thinking and his statements and his the way he saw the world. So that by the time I got to this point in my job, I would wake up in the morning and think, you know, what does Barack Obama think about this day? When something happened in the world, <laughs> you know, anything happened in the world, big or small, I would my thought would not be, what does Sarah to think? My thought would be, what does Barack Obama think about this? Because you're just always trying to imagine how he views things. You know, what was great about Cody and Terry um, was that, you know, Cody had been with him for so long and was kind of the, of course, the president himself was the final editor, but Cody was really good and Terry was really good about helping all of us sort of shaping the speeches and editing the speeches so that they were clearly from one person. But of course, the president took the pen, so he would ultimately make sure that it was the thing he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it. And, and he spilled plenty of ink on our drafts to make sure that it was. It's important for us to pause for a moment and make sure that we're talking with each other in a way that, that heals, not in a way that wounds. This evening, Michelle and I will do what I know every parent in America will do, which is hug our children a little tighter, and we'll tell them that we love them, and we'll remind each other how deeply we love one another. But there are families in Connecticut who cannot do that tonight, and they need all of us right now. In the hard days to come, that community needs us to be at our best as Americans, and I will do everything in my power as president to help. And from every family who, who never imagined that their loved one would be taken from our lives by a bullet from a gun. So how many drafts did you go through before you actually delivered that speech? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I'm sure I probably wrote, you know, 20 drafts on my own (laughs) before I even sent it to Terry and Cody. And then um, I remember they we went back and forth a couple times with those guys. And then so and then I I can't remember how many I went through after that. And I don't remember how many drafts the president went through. A few, though. Yeah, I mean, these are the sorts of speeches where you, as a writer, you agonize. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, every speech I agonize. But it takes a while to sort of, you know, to get the structure down. And Terry and I had talked through the structure, but I think structure is a really fundamental, foundational component of speech writing, at least for me. Not everybody needs to outline. Not everybody needs to think through that. But I need to have a roadmap, generally speaking, so that I can build my argument. And that takes time. So... That, can, that in and of itself can take a few drafts. And I actually start by writing by hand. I, write, I start my outlines by hand and usually start a draft by hand and then transition over to a computer. So, Why? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm old. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I, I 
I think I... So you're using uh, Aquila and Ink then, are you? You're that old? No, no, not that old. But I think maybe it does start with sort of how you started out writing your essays when you were a kid. And for me, that was by pen, which was not which is not true of today's kids. But, but I think that there is something for me personally, and this is not true for everybody, about physically taking a pen to paper that removes a filter that exists when I'm writing on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's conscious, and I've never really articulated it <laughs> until you asked me that question. But I think at least initially, you know, it is why people often write diaries by hand. That filter is removed when you're not typing into a machine. And I think when you're first trying to work out your ideas, what you're trying to do is uncensor yourself. Stephen King, who wrote you know, one of the great books on writing called On Writing, I might screw this up, but I, I recall that in the book he sort of describes that when you're writing, your, when you're writing you want to write with the, the door closed, meaning it's just you and the, and the paper getting everything out. And then when you're editing, you want to open the door. That's when you want more eyes on it. That's when you want to start removing and cutting and culling and figure out what makes sense and what doesn't. But you don't want to self-censor before that point. You don't want to cut off your creativity before that point. When in the very early stages of something, there is something about holding a pen that prevents me from cutting myself off and from censoring myself and editing too soon. Very uh, beautifully put. It's the day of this speech and it's a big speech for the administration, it's a big speech for the writing team and it's a big speech for you. Um, you know, actually it's not. I mean, sorry, not to interrupt no? you, but this is, one of the, this is what's funny about this speech. A speech like this isn't a big speech. I mean, it, it, big in the sense of for whom, you know, I mean, it was big for the, the citizens who are about to be, um, or the newly minted citizens. I think that this may have been one of two speeches the president was giving that day. And it was not the kind of speech that would be televised that CNN is going to cut to, certainly not in, you know, year seven or whatever of a president's term. But come on, <clears throat> the speech must have been big on C-SPAN. I, I mean, who watches C-SPAN, right? I mean, this was, yeah, you and I do. Um, <laughs> but um, I, think, I think it was on C-SPAN. I don't know if it was on C-SPAN 1, 2, 6, 7. I mean, this was not the kind of speech that is that you would generally draw attention to. Um, yes, it was pushed out and, and the ceremony was important in its own way, but it was not, Selma was a big speech and everybody knew it was going to be a sp big speech and everybody, it was played as such. There was a big event around it, you know, the march and CNN aired it live. There are speeches like that, but this actually wasn't one. And to be honest, a lot of speeches with important messages um, that presidents give aren't ones that everybody sees, that millions of people watch. If, if a reporter catches hold of it and is watching it, you know, because there was always a, a pool of reporters following the president and thinks it's important, they might tweet it out and then it might get a little bit of traction. But generally speaking, I wouldn't have called a speech like this a big speech. Certainly not the, mo the highest profile I worked on at all. But it means a lot to you, though. Yeah, it does. It does. It was important to me personally. And is that because the American immigrant story we're still alive and well in your family. It's just one generation and, and you guys were new to American shores. Yes, I mean, I think this is one of those speeches that I wrote from a feeling it personally and deeply. But I also think it, it was bigger than that in that I was, I was really proud to work for a president who believes in this America and um, who was willing to get up there and, and assert that, who was, as we said earlier, insistent on offering that kind of moral leadership to the country at a moment when we really needed it. 
and who, who wanted to actively push back against these forces that were really uh, scary and, and still are. And, you know, in speaking to other people in the building, especially my Muslim American colleagues who were just, it was such a dark time. Um, and I think those dark times haven't really lifted. But people needed to hear from our president about that. And it was really important to me that he do it. And I was really proud that he wanted to and that he wanted to deliver this message. So, so yes, in some way it's about, I, I felt it personally from my own family's story. But, but what the thing about America is that it's true of all of our families. This is all of our family's stories. You know, unless you're a Native American, all of us came here from somewhere else. And I think that's why this was really important. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please have a seat. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Deputy Secretary Mayorkas, Judge Roberts, Director Rodriguez. Uh, thank you uh, to our archivist, uh, David Ferreo, and everyone at the National Archives for hosting us here today in this spectacular setting, and to my fellow Americans, our newest Americans. I'm so excited. You are men and women from more than 25 countries, from Brazil to Uganda, from Iraq to the Philippines. You may come from teeming cities or rural villages. You don't look alike. You don't worship the same way. But here, surrounded by the very documents 
whose values bind us together as one people, you've raised your hand and sworn a sacred oath. I'm proud to be among the first to greet you as my fellow Americans. What a remarkable journey all of you have made. And as of today, your story is forever woven into the larger story of this nation. In the brief time that we have together, I want to share that story with you. Because even as you've put in the work required to become a citizen, you still have a demanding and rewarding task ahead of you, and that is the hard work of active citizenship. You have rights and you have responsibilities. And now you have to help us write the next great chapter in America's story. Just about every nation in the world, to some extent, admits immigrants. But there's something unique about America. We don't simply welcome new immigrants. We don't simply welcome new arrivals. We are born of immigrants. That is who we are. Immigration is our origin story. And for more than two centuries, it's remained at the core of our national character. It's our oldest tradition. It's who we are. It's part of what makes us exceptional. After all, unless your family is Native American, one of the first Americans, our families, all of our families, come from someplace else. The first refugees were the pilgrims themselves fleeing religious persecution, crossing the stormy Atlantic to reach a new world where they might live and pray freely. Eight signers of the Declaration of Independence were immigrants. And in those first decades after independence, English, German, and Scottish immigrants came over huddled on creaky ships seeking what Thomas Paine called asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty. Down through the decades, Irish Catholics fleeing hunger, Italians fleeing poverty, filled up our cities, rolled up their sleeves, built America. Chinese laborers jammed in steerage under the decks of steamships, making their way to California to build the Central Pacific Railroad that would transform the West and our nation. Wave after wave of men, women, and children from the Middle East and the Mediterranean, from Asia and Africa, poured into Ellis Island or Angel Island, their trunks bursting with their most cherished possessions, maybe a photograph of the family they left behind, a family Bible, or Torah, or Koran, a bag in one hand, maybe a child in the other, standing for hours in long lines, 
New York and cities across America were transformed into a sort of global fashion show. You had Dutch lace caps and North African fezes, stodgy tweed suits, colorful Caribbean dresses. And perhaps, like some of you, these new arrivals might have had some moments of doubt, wondering if they had made a mistake in leaving everything and everyone they ever knew behind. Because life in America was not always easy. It wasn't always easy for new immigrants. Certainly, it wasn't easy for those of African heritage who had not come here voluntarily and yet, in their own way, were immigrants themselves. There was discrimination and hardship and poverty. But like you, they no doubt found inspiration in all those who had come before them. And they were able to muster faith that here in America, they might build a better life and give their children something more. Just as so many have come here in search of a dream, others sought shelter from nightmares. Survivors of the Holocaust, Soviet refuseniks, refugees from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Iraqis and Afghans fleeing war, Mexicans, Cubans, Iranians leaving behind deadly revolutions, Central American teenagers running from gang violence, the lost boys of Sudan escaping civil war. There are people like Philbert Florent Akoala from the Republic of Congo, who was granted asylum when his family was threatened by political violence. And today, Philbert is here, a proud American. We can never say it often or loudly enough. Immigrants and refugees revitalize and renew America. Immigrants like you are more likely to start your own business. Many of the Fortune 500 companies in this country were founded by immigrants or their children. Many of the tech startups in Silicon Valley have at least one immigrant founder. Immigrants are the teachers who inspire our children, and they're the doctors who keep us healthy. They're the engineers who design our skylines, and the artists and the entertainers who touch our hearts. Immigrants are soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen who protect us, often risking their lives for an America that isn't even their own yet. As an Iraqi, uh, Mohanad uh, Ibrahim al-Naib was the target of death threats for working with American forces. He stood by his American comrades and came to the U.S. as a refugee. And today we stand by him and we are proud to welcome Mohanad as a citizen of the country that he already helped to defend. We celebrate this history, this heritage, as an immigrant nation. 
And we should be strong enough to acknowledge, as painful as it may be, that we haven't always lived up to our own ideals. We haven't always lived up to these documents. From the start, Africans were brought here in chains against their will and then toiled under the whip. They also built America. A century ago, New York City shops displayed those signs, no Irish need apply. Catholics were targeted, their loyalty questioned. So much so that as recently as the 1950s and 60s, when, when JFK had to run, he had to convince people that his allegiance wasn't primarily to the Pope. Chinese immigrants faced persecution and vicious stereotypes and were for a time even banned from entering America. During World War II, German and Italian residents were detained and in one of the darkest chapters in our history, Japanese immigrants and even Japanese-American citizens were forced from their homes and imprisoned in camps. We succumbed to fear. We betrayed not only our fellow Americans but our deepest values. We betrayed these documents. It's happened before. And the biggest irony, of course, was is that those who betrayed these values were themselves the children of immigrants. How quickly we forget! One generation passes, two generations passes, and suddenly we don't remember where we came from. And we suggest that somehow there is us and there is them not remembering we used to be them. On days like today, we need to resolve never to repeat mistakes like that again. must resolve to always speak out against hatred and bigotry in all of its forms, whether taunts against the child of an immigrant farm worker or threats against a Muslim shopkeeper. We are Americans. Standing up for each other is what the values enshrined in the documents in this room compels us to do, especially when it's hard especially when it's not convenient. That's when it counts. That's when it matters. Not when things are easy, but when things are hard. The truth is, being an American is hard. Being part of a democratic government is hard. Being a citizen is hard. It is a challenge. It's supposed to be. There's no respite from our ideals. All of us are called to live up to our expectations for ourselves, not just when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient, when it's tough, when we're afraid. 
The tension throughout our history between welcoming or rejecting the stranger, it's about more than just immigration. It's about the meaning of America. What kind of country do we want to be? It's about the capacity of each generation to honor the creed as old as our founding, e pluribus unum, that out of many we are one. Scripture tells us, for we are strangers before you and sojourners, as were all our fathers. We are strangers before you. In the Mexican immigrant today, we see the Catholic immigrant of a century ago. In the Syrian seeking refuge today, we should see the Jewish refugee of World War II. In these new Americans, we see our own American stories. Our parents, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins, who packed up what they could and scraped together what they had. And their paperwork wasn't always in order. And they set out for a place that was more than just a piece of land, but an idea. America. A place where we can be a part of something bigger. A place where we can contribute our talents and fulfill our ambitions and secure new opportunity for ourselves and for others. A place where we can retain pride in our heritage, but where we recognize that we have a common creed, a loyalty to these documents, a loyalty to our democracy, where we can criticize our government, but understand that we love it. where we agree to live together even when we don't agree with each other, where we work through the democratic process and not through violence or sectarianism to resolve disputes, where we live side by side as neighbors, and where our children know themselves to be a part of this nation no longer strangers, but the bedrock of this nation, the essence of this nation. And that's why today is not the final step in your journey. More than 60 years ago, at a ceremony like this one, Senator John F. Kennedy said, no form of government requires more of its citizens than does the American democracy. Our system of self-government depends on ordinary citizens doing the hard, frustrating, but always essential work of citizenship, of being informed, of understanding that the government isn't some distant thing but is you, of speaking out when something's not right, of helping fellow citizens when they need a hand, 
of coming together to shape our country's course. That work gives purpose to every generation. It belongs to me. It belongs to the judge. It belongs to you. It belongs to you, all of us as citizens. To follow our laws, yes, but also to engage with your communities and to speak up for what you believe in and to vote. To not only exercise the rights that are now yours, but to stand up for the rights of others. Birtukan Guduya is here from Ethiopia. She said, the joy of being an American is the joy of freedom and opportunity. We've been handed a work in progress, one that can evolve for the good of all Americans. Couldn't have said it better. That is what makes America great. Not just the words on these founding documents, as precious and valuable as they are, but the progress that they've inspired. If you ever wonder whether America is big enough to hold multitudes, strong enough to withstand the forces of change, brave enough to live up to our ideals even in times of trial, then look to the generations of ordinary citizens who have proven again and again that we are worthy of that. That's our great inheritance. What ordinary people have done to build this country and make these words live. And it's our generation's task to follow their example in this journey, to keep building an America where no matter who we are or what we look like or who we love or what we believe, we can make of our lives what we will. You will not and should not forget your history and your past. That adds to the richness of American life. But you are now American. You've got obligations as citizens. And I'm absolutely confident you will meet them. You'll set a good example for all of us because you know how precious this thing is. It's not something to take for granted. It's something to cherish and to fight for. Thank you. May God bless you. May God bless the United States of America. There's a line in the speech, uh, the first refugees were the pilgrims themselves. Do you think that that fact is maybe lost on many Americans who kind of see them, let's say, as pioneers as opposed to refugees? Mm. Um, yes. I mean, I think people don't think very often about what they were actually fleeing. And I think that our notion of refugees today in 2018 is people of color. And it is very hard for those who are against immigrants coming into this country to imagine that 
there were immigrants who were, and, and refugees who were white. There's just the sort of psychological leap that takes can be challenging for people. But yes, I think, I think that is a, a, a construct that we don't often think of. There's another line in the speech which I found kind of interesting. The truth is being an American is hard. Why is it hard being an American as opposed to, let's say, somebody from, from Britain or from, from China? Why is being an American hard? I can't speak to, to Britain or China because um, I don't know enough about your founding documents. But what we meant by this was that was sort of the, the next part that being part of a, a democratic government, being a citizen is hard because we are a country that was founded on this idea that all people are created equal and that everybody has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that means everybody. And what's inconvenient is that sometimes welcoming the stranger might mean opening ourselves up to what some people perceive as danger, but that's just what we're supposed to do. We don't get to pick and choose based on your color or your religion or where you came from. America is here for everybody. That's what we said at the beginning. Um, every year at Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, on July 4th, you know, on American Independence Day, there is a naturalization ceremony for new citizens at Monticello. You know, there is an understanding in this country that that's what we are supposed to be about. And so sometimes we have to let in people who are different from everybody else who's been here already or who come from circumstances we don't understand or who look like people who may have perpetrated something you disagree with or was even a crime. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, they are ideals and that's the only thing that binds us in this country. We don't all have the same religion. We don't all have the same skin color. We don't all come from the same place. The only thing that we have that ties us together is this agreement that we are going to fight for our constitution, that we, that we sign up to be a part of the, these ideals, to uphold them. And that's not an easy thing to do. It would be much easier, maybe I guess, to be in China and say we only accept certain people or we have an autocracy and there is a leader and everybody does what that leader says and we, we don't have a republic, we don't elect our representatives. Those are easier things in some ways. This system of self-government where we welcome people from other countries, which is what we've always done, is by definition harder, I think. But there's a line in the speech uh, which the president delivers really well about the tension in American history of welcoming and rejecting mm -hmm. immigrants. So that is true. And we look back at the nativist rants of the yellow press in the late 19th century. President Trump, his bellicosity against immigration, Mexico not sending its best, is as American as then the founding documents as of the American ideal, surely. So Trump is part of this long history of nativism. And as, as you noted, President Obama sort of acknowledged, not Trump, but, but that tension throughout our history. And he actually says, you know, as painful as it may be that we haven't always lived up to our own ideals, we haven't always lived up to these documents. He actually ad-libbed that line. And, and that's true. I don't think we tried to paint this picture in the speech that, that for as long as America has been a nation, we have always happily welcomed in all comers. That is absolutely not the case. That there have always been forces that have pushed back against people coming in. And in fact, our current immigration system is a result of that. So in the late 1880s, we had in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, specifically restricting entry of a specific ethnic group after people were up in arms about the Chinese coming. And later on in, in 1924, we had the Immigration Act of 1924 
further restricted immigration. And that was the result of the success of nativist forces and left us with a system that we kind of still live with today. We've always had this tension and people were fighting back. And in fact, Emma Lazarus, who penned the poem that is on the Statue of Liberty, the one that's a famous stanza, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. She was Jewish and she wrote this sort of in kind of defense of, a, of an ideal she believed that, that America ought to welcome people. And so this tension has always existed, absolutely. And, and that's why, you know, in the speech, we, we even say what this is really about is a fight for the meaning of America and for who gets to decide what this place is about. And as much as there has always been resistance to people coming over, people have still come over. Unlike in other places, it's it sort of has remained that beacon. And one of the lines in here that the president ad-libbed that I love in the section where we talk about, you know, scripture tells us, for we are strangers before you and sojourners, as were all our fathers. He talks about how in the the Mexican immigrant today, we see the Catholic immigrant of a century ago, and he talks about all the people who came over from our own families. And he ad-libbed this line, and their paperwork wasn't always in order. And then he goes on and they set out for a place that was more than just a piece of land, but an idea. And that's the truth, right? I mean, people didn't always have their paperwork in order. In fact, the ancestors of the people who are complaining about immigration now, many of them didn't have their paperwork in order. And yet they, they still came over and they made their way through and, and they are part of what makes America what we are today and what makes America great. And so, yes, that tension has always existed. I don't think that this speech contradicts that fact. I think it actually sort of says we're strong enough to acknowledge that we've, we've had an ugly past with this. Um, and the question for those of us who continue to move forward the project of America is what kind of nation do we want to be? What are those ideals that were put down on that, part, that parchment all that those years ago? What do they actually mean in the lives of Americans today, in the lives of people from all over the world who want to be a part of us? And, and do we have room, not just sort of physically, but in our hearts to welcome people who want to be American? Was that for you one of the most powerful lines of the speech where the president said that the Mexican immigrants of today are the Catholic oh, when immigrants when he ad, well, well that wasn't mm-hmm. ad-libbed the part that was ad-libbed was and their paperwork wasn't always in order you know that's, oh, sorry. that's the kind of line that we probably wouldn't have made it out of the White House you know our vetting team probably would have said you know she probably shouldn't say that but he felt it he said that because of course it's true and and for him to kind of acknowledge that was I think of course not saying that we ought to not have a legal immigration system and that we ought not to have immigration laws. The president, President Obama believed in having legal immigration laws, of course, and stopping people from coming here illegally. And he was also, you know, wise enough to acknowledge that. And sometimes people have come through without their paperwork and we figured it out once they got here. So it was just it was just striking to me that he had loved that. It's interesting in a, a time when darker is such a contentious thing in American politics you say that you figured it out that America has figured it out so I presume you think that America will figure out its current immigration impasse I don't know we are in a really dangerous place right now um, and of course you know those those immigration laws of the past were on the books for many decades and shaped who we were for a very long time I think right now the problem is we have a president who is ignorant, um, is corrupt, lies all the time, and is a ran on a platform of racism and won. And he has pretty powerful enablers in Congress who are going along with his with his plans. And he sort of plucked the most nativist racist among them, Jeff Sessions, to be his attorney general. And so 
I don't think that we can just say that everything is going to be okay. I'm not so sure it is. Already, there, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is separating children, children from their parents at the border. Families who are crossing over seeking asylum because they've suffered all manner of abuse in their home countries. Asylum, which has always been something that we have processed and, and welcomed people who need a place to go because they're escaping from something. So he is implementing policies and in ways that are you know, not just against sort of American democratic values, but against human values, I think. And I don't know how we stop that when our recourse is, is a Congress that holds them accountable and they're not doing that. So we're in a really tricky time where I think we can go in in sort of one of two directions and I'm not at all certain we'll come out of this. I don't feel as optimistic about that because, I, and this is something President Obama used to say all the time, progress is not inevitable. It's not as though we got to where we are and, and that was a foregone conclusion. His election wasn't a foregone conclusion. We shape the events that are happening to us. We determine the direction of our country. That is what self-government is. And we are not doing the best job of that right now. And so I don't think that we can just assume that everything will be okay. So at the end of an administration, everybody has to leave uh, the White House. So what does a once presidential speechwriter go on to do? What are you doing now? I um, am working for myself. I have a, a little one-woman shop. Um, doing speech writing, message strategy, broader communication strategy for different clients, um, some corporate, some political, some philanthropic, just interesting people who have interesting things to say. Um, so that's what I've been doing since I left. Do you want to work for a podcaster? <laughs> <laughs> sure, if you've, got, if you've got something interesting to do, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm open to any project. I mean, that's the fun thing about working for myself is that I can kind of pick up fun projects here and there and help out interesting people and, and on campaigns and that sort of thing. So, so far, I've really enjoyed it. If you can't write for Barack Obama, this is the, the next best, best thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like working with the 44th president of the United States? Oh, that's a big question. What was he like? What was he like as a person? Oh, um, well, I will not presume to know him better than I do in... The times that I met with him and worked with him, he's a lovely man. He's incredibly kind. He's brilliant. I sometimes wonder... How so? Oh, so? Give us one aspect of his brilliance. You know, I would only see his brilliance, you know, in my work. And so he could just very quickly... The day-to-day the day, uh, day -day of a president is is very hectic. You know, you go from your, you know, your morning senior staff meeting to an intelligence briefing to the ceremonial... Uh, event, and then you go to a, a meeting in the Situation Room about some foreign policy challenge, and then you're meeting with a bunch of interest groups about immigration, and then you know you're, you're going all around. Your mind is constantly being moved, and, and the, the sort of the chessboard is being remade at every step. And you have to be in a moment and grasp very quickly what's happening, and then make a decision. And as a writer, I find that that can be challenging. You know, writers sort of we fancy ourselves. We, we like to give ourselves the luxury of taking the time to pull ourselves up in our little rooms and, and find inspiration and write. And he had to do that without that luxury. So he could come from anything and sit down with a draft and glance at it and very quickly identify sort of where structurally the problem might be, where a better word could be used, whether the idea was as clear as it could be. He's just incredibly quick. His mind is, is so quick. And um, 
and he's very funny, um, which helps when you're a writer. But I think it was such a gift to have somebody who very rapidly, with the, with the limited amount of time he had, could look at a draft and tell you what direction it needed to go in. And that's what I mean when I said earlier that it was like taking a master writing class. It was like sitting down with your writing professor and getting great feedback very quickly and then being able to go and implement it. It was always such a fun to get back his edits and see where did he find a better word for one that I had put in? Or how did he kind of expand an idea? You know, I, I, there's a there, I mean, there's so many, there's so many examples of this, but to, but to watch it was really sort of, was something special. And he's, and, and of course, just a, a really lovely man. Um, there, there's sort of one very quick story I'll tell, which is, and it wasn't of, of us being face to face, but a magazine writer, David Remnick, who writes for the New Yorker, wrote a piece about Aretha Franklin. I forget when this was, maybe a year or two, 2015, 2016, I don't remember when. And he had emailed the press office to get a quote from President Obama about Aretha Franklin um, because he knew that she he very much admired her and actually at a at a Kennedy Center Honors event honoring Carol King when Aretha Franklin actually sort of as a surprise came out and played the piano played Natural Woman for Carol King and it was a very sort of moving moment um, Aretha Franklin is a prodigy on the piano it looked as though President Obama kind of shed a tear as this happened and so I think that's why Remnick reached out to get President Obama's take on, on Aretha Franklin and so. Somebody in the press office was tasked with writing a first draft, and then it went to me. And um, so I, I tended to write about music for whenever there was that occasion. And so I worked on it and edited it. But I knew in my mind, I thought, gosh, you know, I can I can write pretty well about music for this president, but this feels really personal. And he doesn't have time to fix this. But you know, I did the best I could. I thought I I ended up with something that was that was fine. Um, that was probably pretty good. And for any other president, it would have been fine. And it, it goes to him, and then in the morning, you know, he, he would work on all this stuff overnight. He, he did a lot of homework at night. And in the morning, we get back the draft, and he has crossed out everything I've written and rewrote uh, and, and written something that was so beautiful and so poignant and put Aretha's music in the context of sort of American patriotism. And it was such a lovely statement and so profound. And I thought, gosh, you know, he did this in the middle of, Lord knows what time he did this. And Lord knows what he had been doing before and after. So he probably had to read through his intelligence briefing and, and you know, maybe have a meeting with his chief of staff. And here he was in the late hours, then turning his mind to be able to talk about the meaning of music in, in the American context. I mean, what a president, what a leader to have, what a rare gift we were given. fell on our harbor.
and tyranny threatened the world, she was there to witness a generation rise to greatness and a democracy was saved. Yes, we can. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.